0: Good morning. It's good to be with you guys. Uh, I'm John, one of the pastors here. Um, if you're new here, just so honored that you join us, and uh, hope you have an encouraging morning. Uh, let's do a couple announcements before we dive into our scripture for the morning. So first one is just from this last week. Uh, I had a great time this last week. I got to join with uh, Chris Shuey, as well as Daniel Harrington, and we visited the Wilson small group And uh, once in a while, we've been doing these evangelism-type trainings, like learning how to share our faith. And uh, we just had a great time with this group. And uh, if you are one of those people who are like, man, I'd like to grow and learn how to share my faith, uh, keep your ears open because we might be doing a class later this spring that you could jump in on before services. So anyway, that was a fun highlight from this last week. Another announcement for you is two weeks from today... That's a drum roll. We're going to have a special morning. We're going to have a morning of music and prayer, followed by a brunch, um, following the service. So yeah, it should be really special. Maybe a little bit shorter time in here, a little bit more time out there. And uh, we did this on New Year's Day, and we just found man, it was so sweet just to be there. There's a whole church family getting to chat and connect. Uh, maybe you're someone who has chickens at your house and you have eggs. Eggs are very expensive, and so let's just say that you've got an abundance of eggs, (laughs) then maybe you can find Andrew Meyer after our service and say, I've got some eggs for you. It might help us make this dream a reality. So uh, if you could help us with that, that that should be great. So with that, we are going to get into our sermon. We are in the book of James now. Uh, Perry kicked us off last week with the beginning of James which uh, has always had a special place in my heart, this book. Uh, When I was in high school, I started reading the Bible on my own, trying to um, study it. And this is the first book that I felt like I understood on my own. There's something about it. It's pretty approachable. It's very um, straightforward. It's very applicable. and, And so it was the first book that I really loved from the Bible. And like I said, it's very practical. You might recall from James, if you've read it before, James likes to push the application button. They're called imperatives. There are 108 verses in the book of James, and 59 times he gives a command, a command saying, do this. So more than once every two verses, he's telling you something to do um, on on a wide range of various things in life, things that we can relate to. If you read the book of James, it can feel perhaps like there are a lot of abrupt changes in the subject as he addresses different things we experience in life. And uh, it, it's left Bible scholars kind of scratching their heads a little bit, trying to come up with a unified structure for the whole thing. And it doesn't seem like there's one structure that everyone agrees upon. Um, but the, here's my favorite theory, is that James, who is writing to the early church after Jesus had ascended to heaven, he was a leader in Jerusalem. And perhaps he had a, a litany of different sermons that he gave to the, tr- the uh, church there. And then when he wrote this letter, which is to people who lived outside of Jerusalem, uh, this was almost like his cliff notes of like, here's the main point from this sermon. Here's the main point from this sermon. I don't know. It might be the case. That's the one that I like the best so far. Regardless, James leaves us with no room to merely listen. He gives us lots of commands, lots of exhortations, And um, he's not calling us to merely think and ponder on this, but he's calling us to action. And so by way of heads up, at the end of this sermon, my intention is to give you a chance to make this real and not just be theory that you hear about, but I'm going to have you talk with the person next to you about what you heard from God's word and how it applies to your life today. So let's not just be listeners, but let's be doers of the word this morning. Amen? Amen. Amen, all right, you guys are awake. So uh, today's passage is on the topic of temptation, the topic of temptation. And so what we're going to do is we're going to discover two commands that James gives us about temptation, and uh, we're going to clarify some confusion along the way, hopefully, by God's grace. So how about we pray, and then I'm going to have you open up the Bible in front of you, and we'll dig into God's Word. Well, good morning, uh, Father. Um, We love you so much. You are so stunningly good. You are so um, mind-blowingly generous to us. Thank you for all the little things we enjoyed this morning. Um, Thank you for our health. Thank you for this church. Thank you for food that you provided. Um, Thank you for the chance to be in your word this morning. Um, We just tell you, we we don't want to just go through the motions this morning. We want to hear from you. We want our lives to be changed. Uh, We want to love you more. And I want to pray that you would help us in those moments. Each one of us has them. They're moments when we're weak, and we are all the more prone to temptation, to believe lies, to sin. Help us glean from this so that we're strengthened in those moments, especially of weakness, uh, that we might not be tempted into sin. We pray that you'd have your way this morning, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so you can grab that Bible in front of you, follow along. James 1, starting in verse 12, it's on page 1011 in the Bible in front of you. We'll read through it, and then we'll kind of unpack it in sections. James 1, starting in verse 12. Going to pick up on one of the verses Perry shared last week. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives forth death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures." That's God's word we're looking at this morning, and we'll go right to the beginning and look at verse 12 together, where he said, "...blessed is the man who remains um, steadfast under trial." This verse serves as a hinge verse between last week's topic from, from Perry, those first verses of James, and this next section. You'll recall last week, Perry covered the the scripture before it, which talked about how we should be joyful when we have a trial come into our life, because it's going to produce more Christ-likeness, more maturity in us, um, and we're going to be crowned with life. And at first glance, this looks like one of those abrupt changes that we know about in the book of James, all these different topics. Um, But we're actually going to see that James is actually fairly intentional in the reason he brings this up. And here's how we know it. It's the fact that his word in verse 12 and verse 13 are actually the same root word. I know this is a little nerdy, I'm not going to nerd out on you too much, but the same root word pyrasmas in the Greek means both temptation or test or trial. So the same thing in, in verse 2: Count it all a joy, my brothers, when you meet trials. Verse 12, bless the man who remains steadfast under trial. Let no one say when he's tempted. Um, Same root word for each of those. So that's kind of interesting. So what we're going to see in the upcoming verses is we're going to see these two commands. They're going to help us face temptation. Uh, But along the way, we're going to have to go through a couple theological speed bumps to make sure we understand this passage. So let's move on to verse 13 now that we've looked at 12 and know that this is a a smooth transition with the same topic of sorts. We'll go to verse 13. Let no one say when he's tempted, i mean tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. There can be a tendency to blame God for the times we give in to temptation. Those weak moments I was praying about earlier when we, we feel extra vulnerable, and maybe you've even heard somebody say something like, after falling into sin, like, man, God made me do that. Or man, God just set me up for failure. Like, God was tempting me into this. And James strongly rebukes us from ever thinking, or specifically from ever saying this. This is one of his two imperatives in the the passage. Don't say this. Don't say God tempted me. Don't blame God for your sin. And James gives us two reasons why we shouldn't. The first one is that God can't be tempted with evil. He is not uh, able to be tempted. But secondly, that God himself tempts no one. He's not trying to tempt anyone. And there's no exceptions to this. But these two strong statements from James provide the theological speed bumps that I was foreshadowing earlier. One that readers of the Bible must answer. And this isn't intended just to be an academic exercise. This is intended to help us overcome temptation. So here is our first speed bump. God cannot be tempted. Wait a second, but what about Jesus? Aren't there multiverse verses that talk about Jesus being tempted in the Bible? Such as this one. For instance, Hebrews 4.15. I think this is in Perry's message as well. For we have a high priest, Jesus, who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. It seems like Jesus experienced not only a few temptations, but perhaps temptations in every kind of respect. Or maybe this is the one you thought of. uh, The account of Jesus being led into the wilderness, Luke 4. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, this is after his baptism, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted, that's the same word uh, as before, by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days... And when they were ended, he was hungry. It seems like Jesus was tempted not just on one occasion, but perhaps various times over the span of 40 days. And like I said, this is the exact same word. Luke 4, James 1. God cannot be tempted. So That's our theological speed bump number one. I'm going to leave it unresolved and uh, give you another speed bump. Remember, we've learned previously that these are the same word. So I guess we could say, if these are the exact same word, couldn't we ask this question? Does God not test anyone? If those words are interchangeable, he doesn't tempt, he doesn't test. Does God not test anyone? Wait a second, but aren't there examples in the Bible of God testing people? Like, I'll get to this one in a second, don't be distracted by it. Like Abraham, Perry mentioned him last week. It specifically says in Genesis 22 that God was testing Abraham. That word in the Hebrew is the same one taken into the Greek in the New Testament. God tested Abraham by sending his son up the mountain, telling him that he needed to sacrifice him. Or I can think of examples in the Old Testament where God took his people who were rescued and redeemed out of the Exodus. And right after they get across the Red Sea and they're, they're free, then they spend their first three days in the wilderness with no water. And then finally they get to a spring and it's not good water. And it specifically says there that same word that God was testing them to see what was in their hearts, to see if they would fear him and obey him. Or right after that, they're in the wilderness, imagine this, you're part of a group of Two million people, let's say. And you've gone days without water. And now you need food. And God tests them with giving them bread. It's called manna. And he told them that they were only supposed to grab one day at a time. But if they grab more than that, it wouldn't work. And so God was, again, testing their hearts. Or like this one in John 6. Very similarly, also in a wilderness, also having to do with food. When there's a large crowd... It says this in John 6, Jesus lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, uh, where are we to buy bread so that we may, these people may eat? Jesus said this to test Philip, for Jesus knew what he would do. Jesus wasn't trying to brainstorm a solution. He intentionally said this to test Philip's heart. So, our speed bumps are left unanswered. The confusion leaves us questioning God's character. Can God be tempted with evil? Meaning, is God actually not good if he can be tempted with evil? Or does God give us tests? Does he give us cruel tests? Tests that are, uh, meaning he can't be trusted if if he's mean in that way? And so the next verse helps us with our speed bumps. It reveals James' definition for temptation. Verse 14 and 15. I'll get to the image in a second. Uh, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Temptation begins, according to James, with a desire. A desire that I might even add is not necessarily... Sin. It might start with something that is, um, in, you know, uh, amoral. It might start with hunger. It might start with a desire for justice. It might start with a craving for value. But over time, it crosses a line and becomes sin when it comes into a different expression. These words, uh, lures and entices, in the original language, are words that are uh, associated with fishing. I remember the first time I went fishing, I was in elementary school and my uncle taught me how to fish at our yearly reunion camping trip for family. And so he told me the way to catch a rainbow trout was first you have to get these little red salmon egg things and those are the enticement, that is the word entice, it's, it's a bait which you put onto the hook, you make sure that the hook is not visible, it's fully covered, so that when that rainbow trout bites, it thinks it's just getting some food. But really, it's got the hook the hook of sin that gets into its, um, into its lip. And then that word lures literally means to drag away. To drag away forcefully. Which is what I was taught. Once you're on the, on the edge of the water, once you see your, your uh, pole bend, that means it is time to quickly grab it and reel it in real quick before that fish gets off the hook, because you want to get it. Once the fish is on land, then it was gutted, at which point it died, and then we cooked it over the campfire and ate it for breakfast, which was not too delicious. But nonetheless, it provides a good analogy, because these are the words that James intends for us to think about. We think about fishing, we think about these words. It starts with a desire, a fish, is okay for a fish to eat, but it gets a bait, the bait entices it, it hooks it, it is lured, it is dragged away quickly, and what does it lead to? Eventually, over time, it leads to death. You get cooked over the fire. So, um, that's what James wants us, us to think about when he gives us this definition. Back to the speed bump. Speed bump number one. Is it true that God can't be tempted with evil, but what about Jesus? Now, let's look at how James defines temptation and consider those examples of Jesus Starts with a desire and it's lured and enticed into sin. Remember in the, in the wilderness, Jesus was tempted by the devil. It says we have three examples of it. He was offered different things, but each time Jesus very definitively said no. He responded with scripture and Jesus did not cross that line into sin. Or as Hebrews 4 says, he was tempted in every way in every respect and yet without sin. And so we can know from looking at this that James is using temptation, the exact same word, in a different way. He's using it in the sense of falling into temptation, giving into temptation, going the full route all the way to sin. Whereas the other scriptures, the same word, Jesus was offered temptation, but he never crossed that line into sin. Okay, so maybe that helps us with that speed bump. How about speed bump number two, that God, uh, does God not test anyone if those words are interchangeable? And with that, we're going to look at those verses from last week to understand how James uses this word. You remember these words, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials. There's that word again, of various kinds. You know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or endurance. Uh, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, meaning mature. Or you become like Christ, um, lacking in nothing. And then the next verse Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. So here's another visual. Today is a high visual kind of sermon. This is a summary of James' definition of a test from God, or a trial, as it were it's a test of faith which with enough endurance enough steadfastness leads to completeness leads to maturity or that last verse says you get life which i think means now and forever but we also know that's a test of our love because he, he says those to those whom he has um, to those who love him he's promised life to those who love him so every test or every trial from god is a test of our faith It's a test of our love for God, and if we endure in it, trusting Him, believing Him, loving Him, we'll become more like Christ and we'll experience life. So, let's look at these side by side and ask these questions. Does God not tempt? Absolutely not. James says it very definitively, God does not tempt, but we also can look at the progression. Is God... Walking us down this route of the black? Is he luring us and enticing us to sin? Is God leading us toward death? Most definitely not. How about the second question Does God not test? Well, actually, he does. He absolutely tests. We've got all the biblical evidence, but then look at this progression. The intent of a test is to grow our faith and our love, and it's to crown us with life. It's the exact opposite. Look where it leads. It either leads to death like that fish on the seashore, or it leads to life. And so I know that was a little bit of an exercise. Maybe it was interesting, maybe it was boring, but I think it was essential for us to cover that because that's the essence of what happens when we get tempted. We start believing lies about God, lies about ourselves, and that's what leads us into sin. And so I think it was important to go through that. Now, here's, here's my conclusion based on these words. James was purposeful in using the exact same word. Why did he do that? Why did he make it confusing for us? James is using some wordplay. He's intentionally doing this. He wants to get our attention. He wants to provide nuance here. And I also believe, as I've studied this, that at every test that we face from God, which is intended for good, there is also an inward temptation leading us perhaps to believe lies and lead to sin and lead to death. You could say every trial has the opportunity to grow us, or if we take it the wrong way, has the chance to derail us. And so because I believe this is worthwhile, and I want to help us apply this, uh, I'm going to show a video. I'm not usually a video guy in sermons, but because I feel like um, this resource from the Bible Project captures this well, so well, both theologically and visually. So I'm going to, you guys can cue up that video for um, this video, which contrasts a test or a trial with temptation and places it in the whole biblical storyline in a way that I think will be very helpful. So go ahead and cue that up when it's ready.
1: The story of the Bible begins with God creating a beautiful world. Did you like it? sharing it with all of his creatures. And he appoints Adam and Eve to rule it on his behalf. And God gives them access to his wisdom and life, but then tells them that there's one tree
2: they can't eat from because it will lead to death. So they have a choice about how to rule with God. Mm. This kind of feels like a test. Well, that's because it is a test. But isn't that kind of cruel for God to test them?
1: Well, not all tests are bad. Let's say there's a king who chooses you to fulfill a royal task, because he wants to know if you are trustworthy.
2: Well, I guess that's a test, but really it's an opportunity to do something important and noble.
1: Right, but then let's say there's a rebel who hates the king and you, and he tries to convince you that you would be better off not doing what the king asks.
2: Well, the rebel is setting a trap.
1: Right, so a test could be an opportunity or a trap. And the difference is whether the one testing
2: you has your best interests in mind. I see. And both types of tests appear in the beginning of the Bible. God tells them to eat of the tree of life and not the forbidden tree.
1: Yeah, this is God's test of loyalty. God wants to rule the world with humans as his partners, which means they will need to trust
2: his wisdom over their own. But then a rebel comes and tests them to eat of that other tree.
1: Right, the rebel seizes this opportunity and twists it so he can lead the humans into exile and ultimately death. He turns the test into a trap. But after the humans fail, God promises that one day a human will come who will pass the test and defeat the snake. And as the story moves on, God gives a couple named Abraham and Sarah an opportunity to trust him by leaving their family behind. To go to a new land where God will use them to restore his blessing to all people. So this is a test. And at first things go well. But Abraham quickly fails. He lies to protect himself and then he and Sarah
2: scheme
1: to get a son their own way by abusing one of their servants.
2: Definitely not passing the test.
1: But? God doesn't give up on Abraham. He gives him one final opportunity, a test to prove his loyalty. God asks Abraham to go up onto a hill and offer his son as a sacrifice. I can't imagine a more intense test. And Abraham does it. But in the last moment, God stops him and provides a substitute animal in the place of his son. God then says he will fulfill his promise through Abraham's family because he passed this test.
2: So Abraham passed this test, but he hasn't proven to be a fully trustworthy partner. We're still waiting for someone who can pass the ultimate test.
1: Yeah, and as the family of Abraham grows and becomes a nation, God continues to
2: test them. Like when the Israelites wander in the wilderness for 40 years.
1: They have lots
2: of opportunities to trust in God, to provide water or daily bread. But they instead blame God and even say that he trapped them in the desert to kill them.
1: And so the rest of Israel's story in the Hebrew scriptures is pretty much the same. The Israelites don't trust in God and his promise, they're not loyal,
2: and eventually the whole nation fails. So humans have an amazing opportunity to partner with God, but no one is really qualified. And so
1: all of this brings us forward to Jesus. There's a story where Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights without food or water.
2: Ah yes, the wilderness. And there he meets a sinister creature who tries to trap him. But Jesus trusts in God's wisdom. And he passes the test. Then later
1: there's a story about Jesus going to pray with some friends, and God commissions him to go up
2: to Jerusalem and to give up his life. And so he goes. And on the night of his arrest, Jesus took his friends and went to a garden.
1: And he told them to pray because tonight, he said, is the great test.
2: And he prayed to God, Please let this test pass from me, but not my desire. Rather, may your desire be done.
1: In this garden, Jesus shows us what passing the test looks like. He trusted in God's wisdom, he loved others more than himself, and he confronted evil
2: with good. Even though it cost him his life.
1: Right, Jesus offered his own life as a sacrifice to cover for all of the failed tests of his people Israel and of all humanity. Jesus passed the ultimate test on behalf
2: of us all. This is amazing, but... That doesn't mean everything is gonna be great in our lives. I mean, let's be honest, we're gonna face our own tests every day.
1: Right, Jesus said every generation of his followers would have their own tests that will force them to trust God in radical new ways.
2: And these tests can be difficult and often painful.
1: But remember, a test from a good God is an opportunity. This is why James, a leader in the early Jesus movement, said that we should be grateful when we face tests and trials because they offer us a gift. It's an opportunity to surrender to God's wisdom and to become more like Jesus, the one who loved us and who passed the test on our behalf.
0: that was a cool video. I like this quote, a test could be an opportunity or a trap. The difference is whether the one testing you has your best interest in mind. Anyway, I hope that's helpful for you as you wrestle through that tension. Maybe that's confusion, that mystery. Is God testing me? What's his intent? Hopefully we'll be assured of his goodness. So let's uh, cap this off here at the last few verses before I give you a chance to respond here. And um, we'll go to verse 16, we're going to see how to not be deceived, how to fight these temptations. So James 1:16. This is the second imperative that James gives. He says, "Do not be deceived, my dear brothers. Don't get enticed. Don't get lured. Don't get deceived. Don't get tricked into sin. Um, don't get hooked." Why does James say this? Because all of us are susceptible to sin. All of us are susceptible to temptation. God's not the one to blame. It's actually in this passage, he doesn't point out the devil. He does that in another chapter. He emphasizes our sinfulness, the sinfulness within indwelling sin for every human being. And so we need to be aware, don't get deceived. Beware of what you believe about God, what you believe about yourself. And then in the next verses, he shows us how not to be deceived. Verse 17 and verse 18. This is how we counteract the temptations in the same way that Jesus did in the wilderness with truth about God and ourselves. So verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. You guys, God is so, so good to us. He is so good. The Father of lights refers not to um, God being our heavenly father primarily, but it's actually a reference to him being the creator, specifically the creator of the heavenly bodies. And so you remember when God created everything each day, he said, it is good, it is good, it's good, it's very good. So it's a reminder of our good creator who gives us good gifts. And God is not only good, he is so incredibly generous to each one of us. This passage tells us that every single good thing in your life comes as a gift from God to you. Even small things, created things, like a nice cup of coffee to drink, uh, or your family, a loyal best friend, a gift from God. Your daily bread, literally and metaphorically, meaningful work, a gift from God. Puppies that lick you in the face, a gift from God. Beautiful sunsets and full moons. We could list, I could list these on for so long. Every single good thing you and I experience today is directly from God. It's a good gift. And not only that, but he emphasizes that God is not going to change. God is going to continually be good and generous to us. It's a little bit confusing, but he is essentially saying with the shadow variation thing is that we can count on God not to change. There's no dark side to God. He is going to faithfully and ongoingly be good and generous, stunningly good, surprisingly generous um, and trustworthy. And so our flesh wants to tell us, God's not so good. We need to blame it on God. But the truth is, God is far more good and far more generous to us than we realize. And then James closes out with capping it off by giving the example of the crowning gift, that God could give, the greatest example of God's goodness and his generosity. In verse 18, where he says this, Of his own will, God brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Just unpack it phrase out a phrase. Of his own will, meaning whatever this is, this was God's own decision. He freely chose it. He took action. He um, initiated And then it says that he brought us forth. This word has the connotations of of birthing. It's a birthing kind of word, which you remember we saw earlier in the passage where it said that sin um, gave birth to death. Well, in contrast to that, look at what God does for us. God gives us a new birth, the greatest gift it is. the the chance to be regenerated, that instead of being dead inside, both now and forever, it's the chance to be made new, to be filled with God's Spirit, to have new power, to have new motivations, to be able to live the life that God's called us to live. And then you see that phrase, the word of truth. This shows up four other times in the New Testament, and every single time it shows up it refers to the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. I'll give you one example. It's kind of small, Ephesians 1.13. When you heard the word of truth, comma, the gospel of your salvation, comma, meaning the word of truth is the gospel of salvation. It's that good news of what Jesus offers us through his substitutionary death, his resurrection, and all that that entails far more than merely that. And so the good news that we have is this profoundest, most crowning of all gifts, is the opportunity to have a new birth. Not just individually, but together. You'll notice that he uses the words we. So we're saved not only individually into being made new, but we get to be part of this new community, this new organism, this new bride that we're a part of. And so brothers and sisters, this is good news. Each of us has evil this week, We know the evils of our hearts. We know that tendency to cross the line from desire into sin. And yet Jesus offers us the chance for all the times we failed, we sin, we deserve death. He offers to take our death for us and to give us his life now and forever. And to give us the power through the new birth to say no to sin and to say yes to every test that God gives us. The chance to be forgiven And so if you've never made that decision, I ask, why not? Why not today? Why not receive this? You don't have to master your temptations first and prove that you don't sin to God. He only takes people that are messy and broken. And all we need to do is come to him and receive this gift that he offers us. And finally, a last phrase there I'll just sit on briefly. He says that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures This is agricultural language, and so when you'd have a first fruit, it was the first part of the crop that came out, but there was more. There's more that's yet to come from the harvest. And so James, just in a very quick way, is hinting for us that the goodness of God, there's still more yet to discover. It says in Romans 8 that we are um, being made new, that the whole creation is in birthing pains, waiting for the revealing of the sons of God Jesus said that he's making all things new. There is a hope we have of the renewal of all of creation. And that our experience of a new birth is just the beginning of seeing God's goodness and his generosity. That we'll see in greater and greater degree in the future. So with that, how about we do a quick review. And I want to give you a little chance to respond to it. So uh, today we've talked about temptations, trials and temptations. We tried to show the way that they're the same. But also, very importantly, the way that they're distinct. We saw that God, though he tests us, God never tempts us. We can't blame him for our sin. We're the ones that are to blame. And God is stunningly good, stunningly generous. And the crowning gift is that new birth that he offers us. And so, with that, our applications are very simple. It's from James. He gives us two things. remember what he said? He said, don't say that God tempts me. No, let's not say that. Don't blame God when we sin. And the other thing he told us is don't be deceived. Don't get tricked. Don't take the bait. Don't get hooked. Rather, believe the truth about who God is. And so I mentioned earlier that I want to give you a chance to respond. I didn't want to just tickle your um, mental faculties. I wanted this to lead into action. So here's the question that I want you to be able to discuss with somebody next to you. What's a trial or a test that you're currently facing? And can you, can you figure out what's the temptation that's being offered you at the same time? The thing that's trying to keep you not from walking in the test and not growing. And if you have enough time, speak truth to each other, show grace, pray for each other, but you probably won't have that much time. I'm just getting you started on this. It's gonna happen more after the service. So how about we do this? I'll give you a few minutes to do that. The band's going to lead us in before the throne at the end. Um, and then we'll end with prayer. So go ahead, find somebody next to you. Don't, don't end up by yourself, even if you have to cross the aisle. Find somebody to chat with uh, in this regard. Let's pray. God, we bless you. You alone are good. You're amazingly good. We are weak. We're sinful apart from you. We need you this week. Help us in those moments to believe the truth, to walk in the trial, to pass the test, not to give in to temptation. Don't let us get duked. Don't let us get tricked. We want to see you as good, amazing God. Thank you for your word. We praise you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.